Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You know, anything too hard in life is not worth doing. Remember that. Okay. Like snowboarding, or martial arts, you know? Yeah. Pottery. Right. Or, um, math. The great has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, if I ask you what the opening question is and you answer me, is that the opening question? Oh, so meta. <laughs> it has to be. It has to be. But then, uh, then, but then there's no content to the question. <laughs> And what if that question isn't, doesn't correspond to the, what the question really was? Well, you know what? As with all concerns such as this, one solution is to nip it in the bud. So I'm just going to make the opening question. Uh, Tamler, do you think that mermaids can be black? <laughs> <laughs> That's the opening question. That is now the opening question. Definitely is. Is it okay <laughs> to have a black mermaid for the little mermaid? Um, <laughs> right. But in the second segment, we are going to talk about pragmatism, an essay by Richard Rorty called Objectivity or Solidarity. Is that uh, right? Solid, solidarity or objectivity, so I think. I don't think even Rorty would say that it matters. Um, <laughs> solidarity, <laughs> solidarity or, or objectivity. Uh, yeah. Solidarity or objectivity. But first, <laughs> yeah, so you know more about the story than I do. So why don't you fill me and the listeners in? Because I'm, uh, I'm so online. For people who aren't extremely online as you are. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 there is just this vibe uh, right now where um, the, the proximal thing that made me want to ask that is, yes, that there is, there is a Little Mermaid movie live action cast with a black woman playing Ariel. Or Ariel? Ariel? Ariel. 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 Yeah, one's like an Israeli guy name and one's like the Little Mermaid. Um, but there's been a couple of, of these like uh, instances where people start complaining that a black actor is portraying a character, like a completely fictional character that everybody envisions as white or maybe that was originally described as white. So it happened in The Lord of the Rings where there's like, I don't know, some elf that's played by a black character. And in, in Sandman, the character of death is portrayed by a black uh, by a black actor, and it's it's just funny because it's not it's not like these are real people who existed in history, but the fucking Little Mermaid, <laughs> and people take it seriously. They become these like realists about fiction, where they're like, no, in my mind, the Little Mermaid was white all the time. Well, so right, there's a particularly annoying kind of 
guy that's the you know you're ruining my childhood by having uh like <laughs> girl ghostbusters you know <laughs> right <laughs> and, and those people it's like you know fuck off you know that's uh it doesn't the ghostbusters movie is still the same ghostbusters movie. you can <laughs> right. always go back to it and, and you know like i i also don't like those things typically but like feel free to do them as, as often as you want <laughs> it doesn't affect my affection for the original thing but yeah like it, it gets especially ugly and it gets a little more disturbing in the case of like why would you just because the original little mermaid was white like why does she have to be white this time like what <laughs> right. is that so this so this douche uh, matt walsh apparently like stretched this is what I mean by some weird kind of realism. Like he started making arguments that mermaids um, couldn't be black because like the, they, they live in the sort of darkness of the undersea. <laughs> so their skin would not have become black like, as, as a species or something like that. They probably wouldn't also talk and like be able to turn into humans or, you know, right. like. So there's these yeah. weird rules that are being followed, you know, it's so weird. <laughs> And it's just like not even at this point, it's not even a thinly veiled racism, you know, there wouldn't be um, like a, a real like Jamaican crab that <laughs> <laughs> dancing around a kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt Walsh said it wasn't scientific. That yeah. was his, his argument. And, you know, in some cases, like I, I was telling you before we recorded, there is a kind of um, casting activism in Hollywood nowadays that I, that as soon as it becomes like super obvious that that's the whole point of, of the casting, then it, it, I find it grating and irritating because it's not in the service of the story. Right. And, um, you know, people complained, for instance, that, um, that in the, in the Sandman TV series, there were a bunch of, of characters who were portrayed as gay or death was being played by a black woman. In those cases, like the original text is there's tons of gay people in the original Sandman. And so yeah. they're just ignorant and death. It's just obvious that death appears to whomever uh, as whatever she wants to like. Right. So she appears to African people like Africans, you know, I get wokeness for the sake of wokeness, but God damn it. Like if it's just, a, if it's just a good actor, leave them alone. Like, uh, yeah. Why? If, if it's, Against the service of the story, then I find it also grating and annoying. If it's neutral for the story, then I also then I think it's okay to try to increase diversity of cast. If it doesn't really affect things one way or the other, that's what like I heard an interview with Neil Gaiman, uh, and he was talking about this issue, and he said we had a very simple, straightforward rule: if it mattered to the story that this character was a man or white or yeah. whatever then we kept the character like that. But if it didn't matter for the story, if the story would be equally uh, or, you know, just not affected either way, then we often tried to um, be diverse when we could, you know, like that seems fine to me. Yeah. And there is a particular cool way in which the, in the Neil Gaiman world, um, these creatures, death of which is one of them, dream is another one. And they appear to uh, creatures across the universe as whatever those people look like. So if there is a world in which everybody looks, you know, like some blob, a gaseous blob, then they appear as a gaseous blob. So there was always something kind of funny to me that you would resist uh, death being portrayed as black. Because to me, what that says is you don't think the audience is black. Like you're ignoring the fact that lots of people who are watching uh, might want to see that part of like reflected as them, as what they look like. And so, so it is... And I feel that way about the Little Mermaid. Like, God, 
you know, there's black people who might be like, oh, cool, that mermaid. Totally. Right. That's why you do it. You know, in addition yeah. to also like being more diverse and hiring but like actors yeah. and stuff, like that's why you do it is you can connect with uh, more people and people who Hollywood hasn't done a good job connecting with. Um, yeah. Now, here's a question. You know, yeah. there have been, so people get mad, like if Superman as Clark Kent, the character mm. Clark Kent was cast as a black man, um, then may maybe there's room for complaint because Clark Kent, the Midwestern white guy, has always been Clark Kent, the Midwestern white guy. And it seems as you if think that that's like be... essential to his character. I, well, that's what I don't know. It's it's like it seems to me that there is a Midwestern whitiness about Clark Kent, but it might it might not be like I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not it's not that I think that there should be no rules for fiction. It's just, you know, unclear where you draw the line like Othello has to be black I guess yeah right um Clark Kent probably doesn't have to be white I, I think he doesn't but I don't really care you know yeah. about like Superman so like it seems to me <laughs> that he could be a you know, nerdy uh black guy in just the same way he, he's a nerdy white guy yeah you know? that's true that's true and he was created by Jews so he's probably actually Jewish in, in the ontologically yeah, exactly <laughs> I think instead of bitching about it like Matt Walsh or whatever <laughs> they should just do get revenge and have like Beverly Hills cop but like the guy is white you know <laughs> <laughs> just go into like black culture and just have everybody be be white in that you know like an august wilson play but like all the actors are white you mean like what they did with rock and roll yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. what they always <laughs> and, and then rap and, and then rap. all right this isn't even our opening segment no it's not. yeah so what we're uh, for the, the opening segment we asked our patreon supporters our beloved patreon supporters to suggest episodes topics for us and you know like we've been struggling lately so um, this yeah. is always a good thing to and we got like hundreds uh, 130 yeah 130 you know. suggestions and we our task in this segment is to narrow them down to like five or six that's what we've done for the finalists and then after that our five dollar and up per episode subscribers will get to vote and uh, we do the topic that they vote on Yep. And they've typically been like really, really good, I think, like all of yep. them. Yep. Oftentimes because we have the pressure of preparing better. <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh, like we were wondering how much overlap we were given how many suggestions there were. I kind of suspect there is going to be overlap. Um, I hope so. I, I hope so. But but here's where and we we did on purpose did not talk about this before recording. I. I tried to follow at least one rule out of sheer just sort of for the sake of my sanity, which was mostly if the recommendation was a, an entire book, I didn't put on the list. Uh, interesting. Because, you know, it takes a long, especially some of the suggestions, very long books in that. Yeah, I didn't put long books on, but I, I think <clears throat> I put a couple of short books, books that we could tear through, or in particular one, I think only one. Yeah. yeah, my rule was no, like surprising for me, but no movies because they never win. Yeah. Um, you <laughs> know, and we're, I actually uh, thought we were going to do that. Followed that rule. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, like we're like, we're going to do the movies that we want to do up in those lists. So, you know, right. I would for, love to have instance, Stalker. Like, uh, yeah, we, Stalker, we've already agreed to do that. Yeah. Um, and so just because we haven't doesn't mean... Speaking of Just the movie episode, we have a hell of a movie episode coming up. That's right. We better save that. Yeah. It's all right. In in no order, 
um, other than maybe the order that they were written in. Shall mm-hmm. we just start? Yes. Uh, you want me to go first? Sure. So Richard O'Farrell says, would be interested to hear you guys talk about 4E cognition and cognitive science, the idea that minds are embodied, extended, embedded, and enacted. I think I would like this stuff. Um, and I know the challenge is finding like a, a reasonable thing. Yeah, that was not on my list, but mainly because I couldn't think of of a reading. Yeah. That it tended to be biased in favor of when readings were specifically um, suggested just because it's easier. But, but yeah. I like I, but that. I feel like we could find something with yeah, not too totally. much research, you know, and we'll get suggestions yeah. from listeners. Keep it in mind. And along that line, uh, stoicism is mm-hmm. one of my picks. That was so. my next one. <laughs> yeah. Eleni, I'm going to do my best, Eleni. Panagiotopoulou suggested stoicism. And then Daisy followed up by saying maybe one of Seneca's letters. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly little. The one Seneca thing that I know is stuff on anger. I would do this. I think I, we could definitely find uh, a good couple of readings. Yeah. And a lot of yeah. listeners have asked us over the years to do this. Um, and if you have a... Oh, hold on. Sorry. Aussie. And along that line, if anybody has specific readings to suggest, uh, feel free to message us. Um, okay, my next one. James Marshall had a couple of suggestions, but the one I thought would, might be interesting was the, or, the origin and history of hell. That almost made my list, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Origin and history of hell. Um, as a, as a, you know, we toyed with, when we were doing evil, yeah. um, the, the original intention was to maybe do something on the devil. But I think that, that this might be that thing that maybe we... Could we do uh, one on like revelations? Like I don't really know anything about that. It's just except that it's like fucked up. <laughs> it is fucked up. We could. It would be hard because it is so so symbolic, and it's like super yeah. unclear what uh, you know. It reads like random things, but but I <laughs> yeah. I just was reading a, a book by Elaine Pagels on Revelation. Um, really? So yeah. So I'd I'd definitely pretty much any of the Bible I'd be down to do, except for like. The book of Leviticus that lists all your rule, your, your people's rules. Well, we whatever. need to do it. <laughs> book of Leviticus. That'll get the downloads. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so both Doug Orleans and Jason Clinton um, talked uh, talked about the multiverse and sort of this. Uh, I believe that Doug mentioned just a few things that um, works of art that have recently had multiverse ideas we've talked about simulation stuff and why that might be in the air like why um why that might be an exciting yeah topic for people nowadays i don't think we've given the multiverse that much of a treatment and i'm not sure i kind of feel like a lot of what i think about simulation theory i think about the multiverse (laughs) multiverse. uh and i don't know if i have much more to say about like the multiverse idea. I mean, I think the details of why, you know, respected scientists posit right. that's one answer to like some quantum puzzle. Yeah. And um, like that, the details of that are interesting, but I feel like, you know, that's, that's something you could better learn about on Sean, Car- Sean Carroll's podcast or something. Yeah. 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 I agree. Like there's, I like consuming things that have multiverse themes, but I yeah. don't know 
how much I have to say about it. I think he put Twin Peaks as one of the ones <clears throat> with the plays with the multiverse, which is totally fair. It's an, an interpretation, but it's controversial. Mm. Yeah. What standard for justification do you have uh, for Twin Peaks? Uh, I like uh, that people have bring their own interpretations. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think I can stand outside myself to come up with the most rational one. That's a little uh, subtweet of the next ep- the next segment. Uh, okay, Alexander Zani ha- mentioned The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. This is a book that um, is, I think, totally doable for us. It's a novel. I think it reads really quickly. I don't think it's very long. And I think it would be up our alley. I, it's not on my list, but that's because I have two other Alexander Zanny uh, suggestions. Yeah. Um, but of course, I'd be I'd be uh, up for any Ursula. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, uh, the Zanny uh, Alexander Zanny's suggestion that I had next was uh, De Beauvoir's Ethics of Ambiguity, which yeah. I feel like we've talked about doing that before. Yeah, it's a blo- it's a book though. Yeah, I know. Um, like this is that's a big that, that would be a big undertaking. Yeah, I didn't even look to see how long it was. Oh, actually, it's not that long. Ethics of ambiguity. It's seventy six pages. No, oh, yeah. you know PDF pages. It's still all right. I have Farid's William James: The Variety of of Religious Experience, which we've talked about doing a lot, and he even mentions a chapter that we might just do. You know that one chapter, mysticism. The mysticism. Yeah. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. We do not have a lot of overlap. I know. I know. I was yeah, I was, I was thinking this might happen. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, uh Emily Myers, Sandman. I do want to if have you gotten through the Sandman? At no, all? not only that, but my dog <laughs> Omar got it. <laughs> He got to it while I was in New York this past. Uh, it was, I guess, sitting uh, on like a, a table by the couch, and Domi just tore through it. Yeah. So Omar, sorry, Emily. Uh, Omar <laughs> yeah. has shattered your dreams. She messed that up. Uh, I was in like I've read like the first couple things of it. I also listened to the audiobook version of it. I listened to the first volume, I think. Oh yeah, um, did you like that? I haven't listened to the audio. Yeah, version. it was good. Um, mm-hmm. It was a little, I don't know, abrasive, like, but, you know, more than it felt like it needed to be. But, you know, getting the sense from reading him and then uh, the, I watched a little of the Netflix Sandman series. It's like, that's just who he is. Like, it's just <laughs> like, yeah, it's a little <laughs> extra, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it exists in a time and place also. Like, it's very, very much uh, early 90s. Um, and if you sensibility, both the art and the, yeah, yeah. Um, probably responsible for a lot of kids becoming goth mm-hmm. um, back, including Emily, probably. Yeah. <laughs> We've put that on the list before. It doesn't. Yeah. Win. That's the problem. Yeah. It, it didn't do that well the last time we put it on the list. That's but right. I'm going to yeah. probably get a, <laughs> another copy. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you one. Kaylin <laughs> uh, Mitchell said an episode on long termism, which you know, we have been not uh, choosing not to do while Will McCaskill had his new book out. But um, I don't know. It's it's hit such a nerve the bu- that that book now. Yeah. And there are so many fierce critics and, and defenders that um, I don't know. Maybe we should do an episode. Honestly, the only reason I didn't include it is because I thought you wouldn't be interested in doing it. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely down. Yeah. Uh, to put it on the list. Yeah, what's your next one? 
Uh, so TL suggested a book by Mercier and Sperber called The Enigma of Reason, um, which is their argumentative theory of reason. But, um, but they have a BBS article that they wrote before that, which we looked at that their, though. I looked at that. I couldn't get into it. You couldn't. Yeah. I feel like it's so up your alley. Like maybe I just I was not in the right mood. I'll look at it again. Yeah. Or maybe I mean, we'll just do that. Like if it's good, because you've been wanting to do it for a while. Um, yeah. If if I if I reassess it, like I, we'll just definitely do that. We don't need to put it on the list. Okay. Uh, I had a different one by TL, which is Metaphors We Live By by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. That This is an interesting topic to me, metaphors and the way, and like how fundamental they are to our communication and understanding. Yeah, I've read, if, that, I've read that book um, and it's a, it is a very good book. Yeah, like, I think that would be cool. I have, did this make it last time? I still want to do it even though it is a book, but Hofstadter's I Am a Strange Loop. Oh, yeah. Do, I had this in like a honorable mention category, but, uh, yeah, I think we, it was, it's just long, you know, it's long. Yeah. It would be. Um, So, but I think we, when we have the time, we should just do that. Okay. So I see what you're doing. You're dismissing all my, uh, my, (laughs) by saying like, no, no, we'll just do that. (laughs) No, no, no. You're you're imagining things. Pretty sneaky. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're crazy. Um, I, I think this has made the list before. I don't think, I, but I'll just say it. Ian Boise, uh, The Hedgehog and the Fox by Isaiah Berlin. Isaiah Berlin. Yeah. I feel like that's one here. I'll do it for myself. That We're when we have it. the time to do it, <laughs> we'll do it. You know? Right. Um, yeah. We don't need to put it on the list. See? Yeah. <laughs> fair. Oh, totally fair. Okay. My last one is... Uh, as nebulous as you can get, but Kate Rodriguez and then Emily chimed in something on anthropology. Oh, this yeah. is to me contingent upon finding the right thing to read. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you have suggestions, I'm sure we'll, you know, if you send us a good paper, we'll be very yeah. likely to, to do an episode on that. And there's yeah. different kinds of anthropology. And I, f- I feel like the, co- you know, there's cognitive anthropology and then there's, you know, ethnography. Yeah. Whatever. Cultural anthropology. I, I I did a lot in my relative justice book. I went I went into that literature and I always loved it. Okay, uh, just a few others to shout out. Um, a, a few people recommended Lolita, and yeah, I think the, you know if that's like a summer one, but that would be awesome. Yeah, bunch of people rec uh, recommended the new Nathan Fielder show, The Rehearsal, which I have seen. That uh, might actually win if we put it on the list, <laughs> and I have not seen it. Um, it's really interesting. It won me over. I was I was pretty much out after the first episode, and then convinced my like got convinced to see the next one, and then was very into it. Kevin T recommended very bad daughters. Our daughters take over the mic and tell stories about us. <laughs> yeah, that was cute. My daughter will never do it. <laughs> I think she might. And then uh, Edgar said something by Raymond Gaeta. Like, this is one of these blind spots for me. Like, I, I feel like I've heard people praise him and say I would love him. And I just, like, always just forget about it afterwards. What but is he, he gives. Do? Is he the He's a, like a philosopher. Definitely wrote for more popular audiences. And But is it about consciousness like philosopher's dog is in some sense about minds and mm-hmm. you know uh minds of other people and he has a he comes from a very kind of a late Wittgensteinian approach apparently like again i looked all this up today just to yeah uh, see who he was um, we should just put 
Wittgenstein on the list because clearly you <laughs> have been jerking. You've been edging yourself to Wittgenstein for like the last five months. Five years. <laughs> have you ever read him directly? Yeah, I mean, I've read Philosophical Investigations and it's good, but you know, it's aphorisms. So it would be hard to do. We yeah. could try, but it would be hard. They're not <laughs> as fun as Nietzsche's aphorisms, but... Uh, we are. should just write a book of aphorisms because that seems pretty easy. <laughs> aphorisms. Climb the mountain and tame the woman. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have. Um, oh, so yeah. Like, what do we got? Uh, well, I was gonna if you if you will allow me to say a couple of honorable mentions. Uh, <clears throat> um, uh, Vruj Patel mentioned a couple of episodes, specific episodes of Love, Death, and Robots. Which is, I guess, an anthology series that I take it like Black Mirror-y um, okay. kind, kinds of. Um, and then this is one that I would never do uh, as as an episode. <laughs> but I might... <laughs> I don't think it would take a lot of convincing to have me talk about podcasts and music setup um, that was uh, mentioned by Xylem Phlegm. Xylem Phlegm. Because um, I could probably just hop on and do a 15-minute bonus episode about what microphones <laughs> I yeah. use. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to do that. That would be a good solo podcast. <laughs> yeah. Like Sam Harris. I just just talk into a microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or Colin Cowherd. It's unclear to me what we have. We had Stoicism that I think was the only one that was actually on both of our lists. Yeah. We had a lot of them that were, you know, like yep. long-termism you only yep. put, didn't put on. Should we put and that on? I feel like that might win if we put it on. So we have to like yeah. to be careful. Right. Um, <laughs> and then I said I would put Le Guin's The Dispossessed oh, on yeah. as well. My picks, you all, you shuffled into another category. So there's nothing that, of mine other than stoicism that has made the final list. What about uh, metaphors we live by? Mm, Are you up for that? Or is it, is it long? It's a it's a book. Um, I don't remember how long it is. I'd I'd be down to put it on. But really, what I was looking for was an acknowledgement that only one of my picks has made it on the list. We haven't made the list yet. So how do you know what's on the list and what's not on the list? Uh, well, right now we have Stoicism, Long Termism, Le Guin's uh, The Dispossessed. Well, these are like this isn't final draft. These are just some that we uh, you know that we wouldn't mind having. Yeah. May Metaphors we live by. I, I don't care how long it is. I'd be down to do it. All right. Um, it is 242 pages. Ooh. So it might take, you know, we should specify these might take longer. <laughs> yeah, maybe. We might not put this one out. Like Christmas yeah. break or something. Yeah. Right. I would also do hell. It's The thing is, hell, it does seem yeah. like it'd be, we haven't really gone like a history like that's like history yeah. almost you know yeah it almost like we'd have to have somebody like a hell expert on <laughs> right somebody who's been there <laughs> yeah <laughs> been to hell and back right oh ethics about ethics of ambiguity you said it was only 76 pages yeah yeah, yeah. we could put that on um also if we didn't do hell we could do mysticism yeah that's what I was, the next thing i was gonna say so how many is that is that already too many Stoicism, dispossessed, long-termism, metaphors we live by, ethics of ambiguity, and varieties six. That sounds That's like enough. a good list. Yeah. yeah. 
And we'll keep uh, embodied cognition if we can find uh, a good manageable article. Because I think I could get really into that. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the Merleau-Ponty side of it and just, I don't know, the Buddhist side of it. I think I could uh, really enjoy some good readings on that. There's a lot of that stuff that's just straight up, you know, like cognitive neuroscience mm -hmm. um, too. Um, yeah. It's a possible place of convergence and solidarity. All right. Let's get... <laughs> <laughs> Not that Okay. So we have a good list here because we also have things that we want to do anyway. Yeah. Um, like the hedgehog and the fox, and I am a strange loop. Maybe what? Maybe I'll just read that on my time, and then if if I'm like yeah. super excited about it, I'll try to bring you along. Thanks to our listeners for not just supporting us, but for giving us like a, a half year worth of episodes. That yeah, some fodder, least. food for our for for the machine that is very bad wizards <laughs> and for uh, our souls really food for, for our souls all right we'll be right back to talk about richard rorty now word from our longtime sponsor better help you know my daughter just turned 18 she's now officially an adult and now all of a sudden she's got to do all that stuff we used to do for her make doctor's appointments deal with money and school never mind her personal life and just navigate through the bureaucratic maze that's an unavoidable part of getting older and believe me, old as I am, I still get overwhelmed by it. And I know that you can get stuck in a rut, a bad cycle. You have these challenges and they just seem impossible to overcome. So you just ignore it. Why even try? Well, this is one of the ways that therapy might help. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. And it's a great feeling when you're finding solutions to your own problems. You're just better equipped to do that and that makes you more confident. It's like a virtuous cycle it makes you more confident that you can address all the future challenges that are in front of you. I know so many people who have been helped by therapy in ways that they never thought was possible. It can help you understand yourself better and understand others around you better, the people you're closest to, and equip you with resources to better handle all the bullshit that life throws at us, and it throws a lot. Everyone is so much more open about going to therapy these days. I talk about it with people all the time. It's not just the Sopranos and Woody Allen movies anymore, and I think that's because of all the benefits that therapy can bring. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online. You get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and you can switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we love to thank all the people who get in touch with us in all the different ways you do through email, Twitter, the Reddit community, um, and Instagram, Facebook, all of it. And we really appreciate it. We read all the emails. Again, we've gotten some super nice ones lately, and yeah. they nourish us. And if you would like to reach out and let us know what you think about our recent episodes or whatever you want, it's uh, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at peas at Tamler or at verybadwizards. You can follow us on Instagram. You can like us on Facebook. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and help others discover this podcast. Um, it sounds weird to us, but, um, you know, some people have never heard of very bad wizards. I don't believe that. That's, <laughs> that's mad, madness. Anyway, um, help other people find us and also subscribe to us on Spotify. Even if you don't necessarily listen on Spotify, you know, take a moment and subscribe to us on Spotify because we want that Joe Rogan money. And if you want to help us in more tangible ways, we appreciate that so very much. Um, our Patreon supporters have been coming through for us. We, we really uh, appreciate it. Um, and we're having so much fun doing the bonus content, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but there are many ways in which you can support us. You could just go to our support page. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. You can buy some swag, some t-shirts, some mugs. Um, or you can become one of our Patreon supporters. At $1 and up, you'll always get ad completely ad-free segments, and you'll get uh, compilations of my beats that I've put together over the years. At $2 and up, everybody gets uh, bonus segments. Um, so all of the bonus segments that we do, including our most recent run of Deadwood uh recap slash analysis shows called the ambulators which to be clear when happening. he says segments he means episodes you get ad free episodes and ad free bonus episodes. and bonus episodes yes that's right but i don't know why i have it literally written down as segments um uh bonus episodes entire ones in fact they're longer <laughs> they're longer than most of our other episodes so i don't they're segments of something, but they're <laughs> segments of, <laughs> of like the whole a, of a larger, like of a life. Yeah. So uh, we have a few of those just uh, in the bank and we look forward to recording more. Um, at $5 and up, you get to vote on an episode topic. In fact, on this very episode, as you heard, we've narrowed down the episode topics and you'll be able to do that uh, soon. You'll also get access to our five-part Brothers Karamazov series, um, uh, Tamler's lectures on uh, Plato's Symposium, a few of my intro psych lectures. And finally, at $10 and up, you get all of those things, plus you get to ask us anything for a monthly video series um, where we answer every single question that we get. And um, we also release the audio for everybody at $2 and up as well. Yeah, um, I was thinking about this. We now do five episodes a month, right? Because yeah, two of crazy. the main episodes, two Deadwoods, and then the Ask Us Anything at minimum. Anything. Like, you yeah. know, that's if we don't do any other kind of bonus content. So, what are we doing with our lives? I, I know. This is actually the it's best it. part. <laughs> <laughs> 
so thank you everybody for your support. We really appreciate it. And um, yeah, it uh, keeps us going. Thank you. All right, let's get to this essay, Solidarity or Objectivity, or Objectivity or Solidarity, by Richard Rorty. Richard Rorty is an American philosopher, died in 2007, author of a bunch of famous books, including Philosophy as a Mirror of Nature and Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. And this essay is kind of a, I don't know, pretty accessible presentation of a lot of his views in those kinds of books. It is a really nice just introduction to the views. So what he's defending here is like a pragmatist theory of truth against like a more realist theory, a a correspondence theory of truth. We'll talk about what those things are. And this is what he argued against in philosophy as a mirror uh, to nature. And what he wants to defend and what he spends a lot of his time in this essay defending is the pragmatic theory against charges of relativism. And he wants to argue that pragmatism is totally compatible with continuing to endorse European enlightenment values and contemporary scientific methodologies. Like he wants to be an ethnocentric uh, pragmatist. What he says is, look, can we justify them as objectively the best systems of inquiry or the best value systems, the most rational ones viewed from the outside, from outside of our own cultural framework? And he thinks the answer to that question is no. He doesn't think anyone can do that. It's not possible. But it doesn't follow that we can't still favor the values that uh, we know have contingently come about in our culture. So that's sort of, I think, a summary of what he's trying to do in the essay. What did you think of it overall? I enjoyed it in the sense that, you know, you and I had looked through a bunch of articles on pragmatism because we wanted to to discuss uh pragmatism for an episode. And I found this to be one of the just clearest statements of, honestly, I found it hard to figure out what a pragmatic theory even was or what it was a theory of. And I found that this, uh, this was just a good starting point for at least this neo-pragmatist kind of view. As I I'll be honest, I struggle to understand what the claims are. And so I did a lot of reading outside of this essay because as clear as the language is, sometimes I found the ideas still to be unclear. As I got to understanding it, though, I'm pretty sure that I disagree strongly with what he's saying. Um, Not in a way that makes me hate what he's saying, because I think that... uh, um, when we read The Will to Believe by James and his his flavor of pragmatism, I, I found sort of almost just really objectionable and maybe even incoherent. I think that this actually does a good job of defending something like uh, a reasonable pragmatist. I'm not sure what the positive claim is. Like, I'm actually not sure for a theory that calls itself pragmatic, I'm not exactly sure what, like how practical it is like how you're supposed to proceed once you endorse this um or how how you differently you might proceed than if you believed in uh, a realist theory that's not necessarily a an objection to rorty's view it could just as easily be made against the realist view like in a lot in a similar kind of deflationary way like simon blackburn does this with with values and says look if you believe my quasi-realist or more pragmatic view 
your behavior doesn't change at all than if you were a realist. So that should that's kind of evidence that the metaphysically simpler one might be the tr- the, the right one. You know. Yeah, I think I mean something slightly different, um, which is that the say say the traditional realist view, the correspondence view of truth that motivates you by dangling in front of human beings the idea that maybe we're approaching a true description of objective reality. That that motivation I, I see as following from uh, endorsing this kind of realism. But, yeah, uh, there's actually a later essay in this collection on pragmatism by Hugh Price, who kind of argues exactly what you're saying, that it actually does make a difference to think uh, that your theory in science, meets a norm of truth as in reflecting reality. You know, it's, it's almost like a, a greater meta-pragmatism of, <laughs> right. of being a realist or something like that. But let's uh, let's take a step back. First of all, just for the record, I think you were very unfair to William James. Very unfair. <laughs> of course James you think in that. that. In that episode. <laughs> no, but in a way, I don't think you were, are normally when I disagree with you. Um, yeah. But And secondly, relatedly, I think, and actually this explains your lack of charity towards William James, that you are a pragmatist, but you just won't admit it to yourself yet. <laughs> Is that right? So like, you know, the homophobe big guy <laughs> that goes to gay porn or whatever, you know, like... The doc, you're calling me Doc Rivers. You're call- <laughs> doc, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's interesting that you would say that I was unfair because I get why you would think that because my temperament is generally so even-handed even when I disagree that unlike you, I don't just yell. You don't don't, straw man. I don't just yell and talk about how stupid of you is like you do. (laughs) But James really disappointed in that. And I felt vindicated today when I was reading up more on, um, on pragmatism that, uh, even James's contemporaries like Purse were like, whoa, James. You're, you're like going a little crazy with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're more impressed with appeals to authority of uh, no, like no, they were tapping, tapping, <laughs> tapping the objective. All right, let's 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 talk about what's at stake here. Uh, I would say the central point of disagreement is that the realist is on this quest to present or discover reality as it as it really is their their idea of true if you say that something is true then uh there has to that has to correspond to some fact in right. the, in objective reality independent yeah. of our perspective right. and um and that's what it means for something to be true and the pragmatist says well there's no way we could access that kind of truth you know we can't step outside of our own perspective um it's just like not epistemically possible and so we should accept that what we're doing is just coming up with better and better theories for our different purposes that are no doubt influenced contingently by the culture that we find ourselves a part of and the various little accidents of history that led us to favor one thing over another. So I'd say like in some ways there's a lot of affinity with Thomas Kuhn here, you know, Um, but 
what uh, Rorty wants to maintain is, so we lose the pretension that we can, from some transcendental perspective, describe the world as it really is. We lose that as a pretension, as a goal, but we can still keep the, you know, uh, enlightenment approach to both science and ethics for the most part, you know, always in conversation, always trying to improve. But when the pragmatist says that something is true, they just mean that's just like I... I, I'm very strongly committed to this. That's what true means. Or I don't think anybody is going to come up, if you say a theory is true, I don't think anybody's going to come up with a better theory than this. Um, right. That's what, you're, that's what you mean by that. Or yeah. nobody has. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so Rorty, you know, starts off by saying, look, I think there are these two modes, um, as the title suggests, two modes of, of thinking about uh, truth. And one is this objective stance and this this quest for objectivity. <clears throat> and he tells this story that he thinks that it started with the Greeks. It's kind of an interesting analysis. He says, he says it was perhaps the growing awareness by the Greeks of the sheer diversity of human communities which stimulated the emergence of this ideal. Yeah, that there is right. a real reality that can be accessed independent of whatever culture, whatever part of the world you're from. Right. So Herodotus writes about the Persians and their and their customs and their right. uh, and the ways they investigate the world and finds that it's completely different from the Greeks. And that, he says, gives rise to this fear of parochialism that, okay, yeah. wait, maybe we're we're not actually looking getting the truth. We're we're seeing through a very specific cultural lens and mistaking like our own cultural habits for axioms or self-evident truths. And so so this uh, as Rory describes it, the idea of truth as something to be pursued for its own sake, not because it will be good for oneself or for one's real or imaginary community is the central theme uh, of this tradition. Now, I like that, but I do wonder whether or not um, this is convenient his history because I, I think if you go before the Greeks or after whatever, um, that this is just a view that people have. It's just usually expressed in supernatural terms, which is that there is a fundamental, true nature of reality. And maybe only God knows it, but it's but it's there. So there is, it's my God, not your God, that's actually um, in charge of the world. And, and so I think it's deeper. I think this desire to have this correspondence view um, is, is deeper than just something that started with the Greeks. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to judge that because if you look at the literature from before this, so the biblical texts, a lot of Egyptian literature like Iliad and Odyssey, they're presenting worlds, and they're. It seems like they're taking for granted that this is the actual world, but they're not. Nobody is investigating, trying to determine like whether their point of view is uh, reflects the deeper underlying nature of reality you know well in the bible there is a lot of that though so when when confronted with philistines who you know the the israelites just referred to as idolaters these these uh other mesopotamian cultures who bowed down to baal you know there's like elijah comes and says like well let's see whose god is really the true god right and let's like you go and do do your rituals and and try to summon your god and then i'll pray to my god and Sure enough, the fire burns the altar when only when Elijah prays, not when they pray. So, like, it seems as you have to believe, like, you have to believe that what's going on is that they that they genuinely believe that their God is is right. right? I guess, yeah. I mean, it, it, the pragmatist 
way of telling that story might be like, we'll see whose procedure can generate a reliable result. You know, <laughs> like that doesn't correspond to there is an actual God. But that seems like a stretch. I kind of agree with you. That Which is fine, whether, actually, because it doesn't really yeah, it, matter it, whether it Nothing really it hangs on. Yeah, 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 like where it came <clears throat> from. It does pop up, I think, more in the Western strain tradition than in the Eastern texts, where they're very sensitive to the way culture shapes our uh, way of viewing the world. And if anything, like almost explicitly the other way, pragmatist in how they approach inquiry. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by one of our favorite charities, GiveWell.org. When you give to charity, how much impact does your donation actually have? This question can be hard, if not impossible to answer, because most charities can't tell you how your money will be used or how much good it will accomplish. You may know it will theoretically help a cause, but how? Or more importantly, how much? If you want to help people living in poverty with evidence-backed, high-impact charities, I recommend you check out GiveWell and their whole team of spreadsheet nerds that we love. Yeah, GiveWell spends over 30,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations, and then they only uh, they pick out a few of the highest-impact, evidence-based charities they've found. Over 110,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $1 billion, $1 billion, including a huge chunk from our own listeners, That's well right. over... Half. Half of that, $500 million. <laughs> no, but at least like uh, definitely over 250000 I think, at this yeah. point. Um, and rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And the best part is that GiveWell is free. Uh-huh. Absolutely free. It wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all their research and recommendations on their site for free. You don't have to sign up. Nothing. And, and they allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a cut. And if you want to know like what kinds of charities they have, uh, they have bed nets to prevent malaria. So it costs about $5 to provide one net, and these nets can reduce the number of malaria infections. Enough nets and a large enough drop in infections can save a life in expectations. They have preventative medication for malaria. Uh, that costs about $7 to provide a child with malaria treatment. They have vitamin A supplements. You know what? It's so amazing that your hometown paper... Tamler, the Boston Globe calls yes. GiveWell the gold standard for giving. And, you know, I think that they're pretty damn good. So if you have it in your heart uh, to donate anything to a charity, give GiveWell a shot. Yeah, go, go to GiveWell.org and pick podcasts and enter Very Bad Wizards at checkout. That way they'll know that you heard about GiveWell from us and we can update our stats. We have a whole dashboard. That's right. Uh, Let's get to $1 billion. Yeah, <laughs> $1 billion from Very Bad Wizards listeners. Again, that's GiveWell.org. And then pick podcast at checkout. They'll ask you, how did you find out about it? And then enter Very Bad Wizards there. Thanks again to GiveWell.org for sponsoring this episode. There was a part of me that struggled so much early on when we started reading uh, uh, this because I, just not knowing that much about pragmatism, 
I couldn't figure out whether pragmatism is supposed to be an epistemological theory or like a metaphysical one, whether it's about, you know, because sometimes they talk about realism and whether or not there is an objective reality, which is just ontology and metaphysics. And then sometimes they talk about just how do we acquire truth or what is truth in, in a way that's just epistemology. And I was like, genuinely confused. I, and and I, I felt like I needed to understand that before even processing uh, what we were what we were reading until I yeah. got to a point where where I realized that it's neither. <laughs> exactly. Like it's it's a rejection of yeah. having to like make that choice. Yeah. And and they are trying to shatter these kinds of dichotomies. That's certainly what Thomas Dewey was doing from what I understand. Right. And is just there's all these puzzles that are kind of almost taken for granted in metaphysics and epistemolo mm -hmm. uh, epistemological literature. And Dewey thinks like after Darwin, um, like all of this should just be, we need to get over it. Right. It's like you don't argue like, against them. You just get over it. Right. You know? Which is a very, something I find very, like I, I'm very sympathetic to that perspective. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, I'm not, not sympathetic. This, my, yeah. I, honestly, my feelings about this are mixed, genuinely mixed, because I think that there's a lot here that, that makes sense. It's, it's pushing on the edges that sort of yeah. uh, rattles me. But there is this section that I found really helpful. Um, uh, in, in this article. So he's, uh, Rorty says, um, the pragmatist is not holding a positive theory, which says that something is relative to something else, which is why, as you were saying, yeah. he doesn't think that it's a relativist theory. He is instead making the purely negative point that we should drop the traditional distinction between knowledge and opinion construed as the distinction between, between truth as correspondence to reality and truth as a commendatory term for well-justified beliefs. The reason that the realist calls this negative claim relativistic is that he cannot believe that anybody would seriously deny that truth has an intrinsic nature. So when the pragmatist says that there is nothing to be said about truth, save that each of us will commend as true those beliefs which he or she finds good to believe, the realist is inclined to interpret this as one more positive theory about the nature of truth, a theory right. according to which truth is simply the contemporary opinion of a chosen individual or group. Such a theory would, of course, be self-refuting, but the pragmatist does not have a theory of truth much less a relativistic one. Yeah, and in that way, I sort of misspoke in introducing it, saying it's a theory of truth. But at the same time, it is an account yeah. of what <laughs> tr the word true means. Yeah. So, so I'm trying to think, why does he say we don't have a theory of truth when, when he does kind of explain what he thinks true yeah. means? And I think the idea is that it's so ingrained in the realist to say, well, then you're saying that if this group of people believes it to be the best theory, then that's true. Yeah. And he's like, no, I'm not like saying that. I'm not like, taking a, like a stand. I'm just saying what the word true means when you look at practice. Right. So, so. And, what, and, and all it could mean too. Yeah. Like there's right. no, like there's, it can't mean anything more than that. Yeah. So Rorty says, I don't know if it's here or in something else I was reading or, or even watching, um, where he says, look, the correspondence theory of truth can't be right because usually you need a condition for success. And the condition for success for that kind of theory would be that when you finally reach uh, that true, that objective reality, then you know it. And he says, but there is just no way we could know it. And so because of that, he rejects any discussion of truth as this objective separate reality that, that we're trying to access. 
Yeah. And I get that negative uh, claim. I yeah. just don't quite get the positive one. Um, and and he says the same about epistemology. He says, as a partisan of solidarity, uh, the pragmatist's account of value of cooperative human in inquiry has only an ethical base, not an epistemological or metaphysical one. Not having any epistemology a fortiori, he does not have a relativistic one. So, right. so, so I get what he's against. Yeah. Um, so then I think, like, when he says he doesn't have an epistemology, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a method of inquiry. Right. right. It's what he doesn't have is an epistemology that claims to, like, this is how we get knowledge, where knowledge is a reflection, of, like, an understanding of reality as it, you know, really is or something like that. I don't ha we don't have that, but we do have methods of inquiry that we use. And Wordy says we should continue to use because they work really well. But but they're not epistemologies because they don't have the pretense to accessing reality in and of itself, like the intri its intrinsic nature or something. And, and you can argue about whether he's projecting too much metaphysical ambition to, you know— scientific inquiry. Yeah, um, right. But I think that's the idea is that's why they don't have a metaphysics because they don't have any positive view about what the world really is and they don't have any positive view about the right way to, to access knowledge defined as the realist uh, defines it. And so um, what they have instead is just culturally informed and all continually evolving habits of inquiry and values that they s subscribe to. So there is a lot of discussion of, of justification here, which mm -hmm. um, I, it's, it's still, I don't know if you can help shed light on this. So uh, he says, for the pragmatist, by contrast, knowledge is like truth, simply a com compliment paid to the beliefs, which we think so well justified that for the moment further justification is not needed. But the grounds for justification, he's already said, are not... Uh, not what a realist would have. Like, at least it's not right. Not a correspondence view. Uh, but he seems to arrive at some view that what a, when a belief is justified is when you have sort of consensus among your community. But he backs away from that a little bit because he doesn't want well, to be self-defeating. I think he just says that's often what we strive for. We're trying to come up with reasons that will make sense to other people and... That sometimes I think it also he's he, he's pretty flexible about uh, the criteria for justification being different depending on the domain we're talking about. So you could like a betting like a sports betting strategy would be justified if it, you know, has a like a 60 percent success rate. Um, over like two NFL seasons or something like that. That's that's a that's a way of easily justifying something without making any kind of metaphysical claim, right? So I think, you know, for scientific, you know, if you're trying to come up with a vaccine, you'll be, this will be a justified if it leads to create uh, something one that, that works can, according to your goals. Yeah, yeah. one that, that actually stops people from getting <clears throat> the, the disease. Right. You know, and, he, and he, so he talks about this, we're just embedded in this particular socio-historical moment. And so what we call a justified belief is dependent on that. And he wants to embrace it. That's what he's saying when he says, let's just admit that we're ethnocentric, but not in the bad way, but just say, right. of course, because that's the only way that we could be. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
it's interesting because your your example of the the whatever the betting strategy or the scientists what what it is that scientists actually believe can be confusing sometimes or mathematicians because if you ask i think a physicist i think they'll generally just say like all we're doing is approximating our models to our observations and to see like which is the best one and i think a lot of them are are in practice saying that obviously n- none of these models are uh, like a complete description of reality but they're they're merely a way of approximating uh, approximating it. it or you know finding some degree of of correspondence with the other pieces of information that we're getting from experiment or whatever um yeah but w- but when push comes to shove, I think that they would say, well, that's because we're limited. So it's an epistemological problem. It's not that I don't think that there is a way in which quantum effects work. I think that, so the question would be, do you think that we can, we can actually get to a point where, say, in one domain at least, we have peered into the nature of reality independent of our own kind of perspective and 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 contingent methodologies you know like that this is we have peered into from the god's point of view like reality as it really is and are these kind of models like just better and better uh, images or photographs of it or you know copies of copies and stuff like that like is are we moving closer to it and getting a kind of blurry look right and and it this is where it gets so confusing to me because um when you say getting better or approximating i think that you need to believe that you're approximating something so the whole like getting better seems like a very hard thing to determine um so so here's like one one issue that that I wanted to raise. So it makes sense to me um, that Rorty would say something like um, the notion of human rights or of what justice is, is one that sure you could believe that there is this realm, like you could be a moral realist and, and believe that we're, we're accessing some true like moral realm. And that does seem crazy to me. It seems to me like a pragmatist uh, view on that is the right one, which is the question, is this just or is this right, doesn't make sense um, set aside from the socio-historical moment. And you can try to put yourself in a veil of ignorance and come up with, but that's right. It's not going to work because even just the, the idea that that would lead to a more objectively you know, just set of principles is culturally influenced. Yeah, right. And I think Rawls, like the later Rawls realized that, but the early Rawls was more Kantian in right. trying to right. uh, uh, access the... Right. the so, yeah, anyway. uh, and so Rorty says stuff like um, early on here that this belief that there is um, a universal human nature that we all would have access to yeah. um, that might lead to agreement there, that itself is not the case. But I, I do wonder when it comes to just science, um, that it seems as if you can be, you know, a kid in whatever, like third grade in Thailand in 1954 and do an experiment and it'll come out the same way as, you know, your daughter doing that same experiment in high school in 2019. And that there is some 
something that needs to be explained as to why those observations are are coming out the same. That this is that there seems to be a domain that I think I want to maintain some degree of of realism or objectivity in my views. Yeah, I know I get that, and it's like um, so. I think there's a couple things that you're getting me to think here. Um, Number one, like you could see the pragmatist really at every step saying, well, of course there's uh, reasons for convergence, you know, like the, the, our world is such that when you run these kinds of experiments, uh, you can reliably get these. Uh, and that leads us to create this model that is pretty good at predicting these kinds of things, explaining these kinds of things. And so they end up sound like just essentially saying the realist story, but yeah, right. in, in, in like these pragmatic terms, but yeah. then. And it seems cart before the horse in, in some of those ways of saying. But but then I think Rorty's point is you're just projecting uh, realist intuitions or motivations on others because you have them yourself. I mean, it is I, I like I wonder, like, to what extent scientists even think about this was always the. Uh, true with meta-ethical debates too, like to what degree that people really, uh, when you come down to it, think that they're accessing something objective versus just trying to persuade other people and come up with different ways of expressing your uh, your values, you know? So uh, I think you could do that with science. The more interesting version of it is to, to if you're sympathetic to the, the kind of moral pragmatist view science ultimately is also governed by values and a lot of the same kinds of arguments can be applied to scientific values values forms of inquiry and so recognizing that you can't escape the fact that you have to endorse some values that can't themselves be justified independently of our cultural way of investigating the world. And so like, there's no getting out of that circle to say, oh, these are the right forms of inquiry. Yeah, but we've shifted now from, from the kind of agreement, the universal agreement that like, you know, 9.8 meters per second um, to, to like the values of a science, which is fine. You know, I think that there can be, wait, I I didn't understand. So like we, we've shifted from the question of whether the, the fact that a kid in 1941 and a kid in 2012 from completely different parts of the world, both arrive at the same exact answer without really a shared community seems to me contingent upon the fact that the earth really does act that way. And the universe really does act that way. So I, but nobody's denying that it acted the way it clearly did, right? I mean, that those two things happened and that it's unusual for them to happen. So that there's probably some explanation for why that happened. Well, that's what I don't see Rorty engaging with, which is how does his view account for, right? Because because he talks about communities and local and historical and and justification being about agreement. We can't, but there is no such thing as universal human nature. So we're not going to have agreement across cultures. But then you get these like huge chunks of like scientific inquiry where there is agreement. Okay, I, I, maybe it'd be helpful to like give an example of this of this kind where two people from different cultures uh, come across a same like the same result. And so the explanation for that you're suggesting has to be a realist one. It presumes a realist picture. Yeah. But like, what would the explanation be um, in in this case? Because I think the details would matter. Yeah. I think. I mean, the, we do. I, I think that that 
say, the various ways in which people at different times, independent of each other, have determined that the Earth is a sphere is most easily explained by the fact that the Earth is, in fact, a sphere. Like, whether or not humans are around to talk about it. Right? That's just a simple, like, you don't need anything complicated. I'm talking about, like, the most simple. So, sure, you could say some, you could spin some story um, well, yeah, but it seems like the best explanation is that the Earth is in fact a sphere. That yeah, so what? Like, it's not that Rorty hasn't thought of that, right? Like, I think what he would say to that is is in that passages where he's talking about the disanalogy with alternate geometries. Um, what the what the pragmatist argues, he says, look. Um, uh, people will say, well, if you have these two systems that are incommensurate, then you have no explanation for convergence. Um, you wouldn't have any explanation for it if you were dealing with two different kinds of geometries or something like that. And he says, well, like those are different at the axiomatic level in, in, the, in the mathematics case. But in the case of values and science and science, like w there's plenty of overlap. And so it won't be surprising if people have uh, similar practices which lead to similar results across cultures. I think that's what he would say. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored once again by the I Am Bio podcast. Where do biotechnology, patients, and our planet all intersect? Find out by listening to the I Am Bio podcast. I Am Bio brings you powerful stories of biotechnology breakthroughs, the people they help, and the global problems they solve. This fall, I Am Bio dives into today's important issues. For instance, are the use of psychedelics to treat mental health promising or dangerous? How does overturning Roe v. Wade directly impact individuals who live with chronic illness? The podcast is hosted by Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, President and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. A medical doctor and molecular immunologist by training, Dr. McMurray-Heath has spent her career helping patients benefit from cutting-edge innovation. So subscribe to the I Am Bio podcast wherever you get your podcasts if any of these topics sound interesting to you. Our thanks to the I Am Bio podcast for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. It seems like a, a kind of an ass-backward attempt to explain why two people would have the same observation, though, which is, I guess my general concern is, no, I, I mean, of course, Rorty has thought of it, but I don't think that he ad really addresses it. So in that explanation that you're giving, he's saying the attack on relativism might be, well, look, if you have these separate independent geometries, never the twain shall meet. So is that what you're saying about different human cultures and human communities? And he says, no, like you just said, because there's lots of overlap in in stuff, right? But yeah, but that doesn't seem like a better explanation for why people a thousand years apart who came up with two different ways of measuring the, the circumference of the earth arrive at the same estimate. How isn't it the most obvious explanation that it's because that is in fact the circumference of the earth? It's as backwards in the sense that that would be what you would say after you've given reasons to buy the more pragmatist view in the first place. Yeah. And uh, if you're already a pragmatist, you can come up with, you know, this kind of explanation. But I think that's because in this essay, he is 
more concerned to combat a, like a misconception about pragmatism that it leads to relativism and that it means that every belief is as good as another or right. you know like uh, and what he wants to do is sketch out a version of it that actually is congenial to me- most of our practices but but can i just say one other thing in response another possible response that he would have is uh one that he puts in towards the end where he says you know it used to work to say, oh, we're accessing reality. That was a good way to think about science. But lately, and he's probably writing this in, in a time where the postmodernists are starting to get um, more momentum. Yeah. And he's saying that like, at this point, the rhetoric of scientific objectivity is starting to lead to more damaging results. And he says, uh, like, so he says, the rhetoric of scientific objectivity pressed too hard and taken too seriously has led us to people like B.F. Skinner on the one hand and people like Althusser on the other. Two equally pointless fantasies, both produced by the attempt to be scientific about our moral and political lives. And like that might be a fair charge to make. You know, you could make it against some of the like effective altruists or that all like this obsession with objectivity is actually starting to be from a practical perspective like a bad thing and it would help to to be a little more humble about what we're doing or just recognizing what we're doing whether not what we think we're doing. Yeah. I this is the thing, you know, that what he says about Skinner, for instance, like I'm totally on board with. I think that there mm-hmm. is this, like, there was this both the positive, the positivists and the behaviorists, um, you know, b- brought together this particular view of science that that um, w- was kind of damaging and probably wrong. And I'm, I feel like Rorty's advocating for something that I think is totally right, which is that when it comes to inquiries about values and morality. And even just you know, like normative questions about about uh, politics, like what form of government is best, like all of those things, um, I can get on board with that kind of of critique. I feel like it's heavy handed though to chop off the ontology of the universe in order to get to like let's not put our kids in Skinner boxes. I, I'm sort of with you in that this isn't enough to convert anybody to pragmatism. What you need is what he does in philosophy as a mirror, a real negative critique of like fundamental realist assumptions, you know, and so that have nothing to do with, you know, its effect on our practices or anything like that, but which I typically find pretty compelling. I'm also just temperamentally less threatened by the idea that, you know, we, we were, we have no access to, um, right. reality you know, <laughs> as it really is. There is this way that Rorty, it kind of pisses me off that Rorty does do these rhetorical turns where he's like, yeah, yeah you know, some people are threatened and they're weak and they can't accept this. And I'm like, wait, why exactly. can't I just say you're too weak sauce to be able to accept <laughs> that maybe right. the earth is round? Um, Meanwhile, I'm going like, hell yeah, those <laughs> cowards. <laughs> He does get, I can imagine it must have been frustrating to be his uh, philosophical enemy um, because he- But it was also frustrating to be him and (laughs) get called, you know, like people can be very snide towards uh, what they believe are relativists. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually is the the thing that I uh, enjoyed most about this arc. And honestly, I find that a a lot of the IDWE type people fall real fast onto that, like- 
Well, right. you're incoherent uh, and a relativist right. because self-refuting. Yeah, self-refuting yeah. because you know whatever they take this inappropriately take something that that is to me like there is a, a a little space where i want to maintain some sort of scientific realism even if the our epistemology will never get us there they take that thing and use it as a hammer for anybody yeah. who dare suggests that there might be a plurality of moral values or anything like that and right. it's like right. well fuck you you can't just say like oh uh Oh, you want to be non-binary? Relativist. Right. <laughs> like there, you know, there goes. We could have never launched a rocket to the moon if we had listened to your kind of science. <laughs> Is the truth of uh, relativism relative? Yeah, oh, yeah. oh, you don't know what to do. Yeah, with that's, that like one, do you? that's like some that's like some eleventh grade <laughs> shit right there. <laughs> yeah. No, they're the worst. They're the good example of like, you know, and obviously so parochial in the way they understand like <laughs> yeah. uh and, and approach like political issues. Like you know, this is just classic liberalism, yeah. you know, um, as it's like been shaped and especially in America. Liberalism brings with it this pretense to this being the, the real, the true, the rational. And I think Rorty is a very good reaction against that. I understand the reluctance when it comes to scientific inquiry especially i guess like like so take something like the multiverse yeah. right theory it's like what are we talking about if we're not talking about whether there <laughs> right. really are um, multiple different universes right. you know right 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 yeah exactly so here's a way in which i can be fine with with what rorty's saying and uh and not be bothered about like what it says for science like it could when scientists take a step back and say, what are we really describing when we have these models of the multiverse? I think push come to shove, they'll say the, the thing that's real, that's actually there. But I don't think, so, so, so let's say that in some corner of your mind, uh, if you're doing science, you hold that the thing that you're studying is there, it's mind independent, stance independent, uh, it's, it's real whether we're here or not. But to take that attitude, which I think is what Rorty is 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 uh, in a large part trying to do with this, is saying he's he's warning against taking that attitude, and then thinking that you can apply it to uh, the truth with a capital T for all of these other really complicated human issues. Um, yeah, I mean, he also thinks you shouldn't take it. He with does right. something like the multiverse. Yeah, yeah, but but that's why I, like I'm okay yeah. with with like the critique in in the sphere in which he is talking about now. Cause I, I honestly would have to read maybe Rorty on scientific realism to see if he says anything that I find. He does say, for instance, um, when he's defending against the accusation of relativism, he says, well, what relativism means is that there is a truth that is relative to some standard. And he says, yeah. I do not see how a claim that something does not exist can be construed as a claim that something is relative to something else. And there yeah. he's very much saying there is no truth. And so you can see, you could just... No truth as the realist understands it, which is correspondence to, to yes, like, no, objective capital fact. T, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And so you can see, you could just see like the, the, how the fight 
plays out and leads us to this sort of like weird fight yeah. against like postmodern versus like uh, right. you know. leads us to James Lindsay. <laughs> yeah, and, like, like the, the wine. Two plus scenes. two equals four tweets and all <laughs> that shit. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> um, and I do think also what's interesting at a meta level is that a lot of it hangs on which is a better approach to take to the world. Yeah. You know, like you see in science that it matters to think that that you're actually describing reality, whereas in ethics or in value systems, it A, doesn't matter as much, and B, it's obviously not something that we could make a claim to. Um, so the, the, the passage I wanted to read of his is where he tries to give the benefits of just taking the pragmatic attitude, like, I guess, like the practical benefits. This is where he talks about Nietzsche. He says, my suggestion is the desire for objectivity is in part a disguised form of the fear of death of our community, echoes Nietzsche's charge that the philosophical tradition which stems from Plato is an attempt to avoid facing up to contingency to escape from time and chance. Nietzsche thought that realism was to be condemned not only by arguments, but from, uh, from its theoretical incoherence, the sort of argument we find in Putnam and Davidson, but also on practical and pragmatic grounds. So this is what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Nietzsche thought that the test of human character was the ability to live with the thought that there was no convergence. He wanted us to be able to think of truth as a mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, and anthropomorphisms. In short, a sum of human relations which has been enhanced, transposed, and embellished poetically and rhetorically, and which after long use seem firm, canonical, and obligatory to people. Nietzsche hoped that eventually there might be human beings who could and did think of truth in this way, but who still liked themselves, <laughs> who saw themselves as good people for whom solidarity was enough. So I get the the appeal of this view too, it, because it, it leads to a more maybe aesthetic approach to life. You're trying to come up with things that are beautiful and useful and will, that can bring people together and that will uh, other people will also find like compelling. And you're not pretending you can't take the stance that like the Weinsteins take or, you know, the IDW. It's just precluded from just your whole approach to the world. Right. It's a, uh, I had that passage highlighted too. Cause it was like, a, it was <laughs> Nietzsche and I think that you realists are pussies. <laughs> right. Like I was thinking as I was reading it, this is just going to be like, he's just going to say what he said before. <laughs> Um, uh, no, I like. There's a lot of that on both sides. You know? <laughs> yeah, oh my God. yeah. No, it, no, it's true. Like God is not happy about <laughs> my anti-realist leanings right now. It's just huge peel of thunder. <laughs> uh, I hope that makes it into the recording. <laughs> like it is intriguing to me the claim that some sort of pluralism is threatening to people, and I kind of believe it, and I believe that we need to get over the um the naive realism just our everyday intuitions that what the way that we do things it, it must be the right way to do things you, you see this as a as a parent right like everybody it's not just that they think that their way of raising the kid was the best way of raising their kid is that they think it's the best way that you should raise your kid too and so there is like a reliance on uh, it's easy to slip into some sort of uh uh no, claim I, to objective yeah, access like to tapped, objective right, facts. Right. Yeah, I I think though that um, you can separate the 
epistemological humility that maybe we can't access objective facts to, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that there are none. But right. but maybe Rorty thinks, as Peirce seemed to think, maybe we just need to surgically remove the bane on philosophy of thinking that we're doing anything that can get us there. That's the question, yeah. I think. And it is in some ways a practical question. Yeah. Um, here's what I'll say. If you think Rorty is wrong, then you also <laughs> don't want a black Ariel in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Only a realist would think. I'm a realist that. about mermaids. And I, have, I have accessed the noumenal realm uh, <laughs> from which I saw mermaids. <laughs> the true mermaid is uh, white and a redhead. You know, like, shouldn't mermaids be talk. like, have like, you know, if they live deep enough, wouldn't they have those little lanterns coming out of their heads? Like those deep sea fish. If we're going to go, if we're going to go full science. Yeah, they, they should have like, well, I don't know how far. I <laughs> yeah, that's, that's another empirical question. There's a lot we have to, to determine whether uh, there should be a black aerial. There's a lot of like research that needs more be, further work needs to be done. Maybe, maybe Matt Walsh would be okay with like a light skinned one, like a like like a yeah, uh, yeah like a spicy Latina aerial. <laughs> like I will, I will go see that movie. <laughs> uh, okay, before we end, I did have one question for you. Do you think uh, adopting something like this pragmat pragmatic theory? Um, or neo-pragmatism of Rorty. Do you think that that weakens your claim on, uh, like weakens the firmness of your belief in anything? So not in practice, because I believe Rorty, like I, you know, probably had strong opinions about what food is better than others. Like, I don't think that he's going around like, but, but when it comes down to it, the one thing about a realist that you can count on is that they're going to firmly believe. Well, that's the thing. Like I go back and forth on this question. It's a really good question. Like, okay, like you're, I'm a pragmatist. I've fully embraced it. You're, um, you know, you, you're rejecting it at least, uh, for certain scientific questions. So is our behavior any different? Do you believe the certain scientific things? things more strongly uh, than I do because you're a realist about it and I'm not. On the one hand, like I think like initially described abstractly, you would think, well, sure. Yeah. If you think this is the true theory that actually reflects reality, you're going to believe that more strongly than uh, if I believe it and I recognize that it's like, like essentially contingent that I have this belief. Um, like, but on the other hand, when you get to the details of, you know, providing reasons for why you believe it and all of that, like, I, I wonder if there would be that much of a difference. Well, and it uh, could go the other way where if what you believe by saying that something is true is justified by, say, the community standards, then I think you have kind of a lower bar in some cases to be confident in your view. Um, whereas if you're a realist, but you are the sort of very lucidly understand that tapping into reality is something that we're way far away from. You might yeah. hold any theory as, as temporary. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you could be a very epistemically humble realist. And I think you could be an epistemically arrogant pragmatist. Part of me like thinks James. though, <laughs> like William James. uh, uh, <laughs> no, not like William James. part of me thinks I, and, and maybe this is self-serving, but I think the pragmatist is just going to be temperamentally more prone to be humble in their, the way they approach problems. You know, I think that's true in uh, ethical debate 
for example, that if you're a pluralist, yeah. you're probably going to be more charitable and understanding of different perspectives, even ones that you reject and you feel like you have good reasons for rejecting. But, um, but I don't know if that's true. Like, uh, you know, certainly it sounds the postmodernists could have really bitter. Um, <laughs> right. You know, they won't work feuds. hard. They won't work hard to save the lives of, of people who are dying because like, who's to say that that's like a value that they should the belief that you should exterminate people is just as good as the belief that you should try to save them so (laughs) really congratulations point of view um (laughs) you know there is an interesting question about uh temperament and and philosophical commitments and i wonder i'm sure people have done this before but does feel like there are a there's like a cluster of kinds of views that particular personalities are more attracted to than others. I mean, most people don't even think about these issues, Um, but like once you subscribe to them, like does that, does that have an impact on, uh, yeah. Yeah. Or like, it's hard to know the chicken or the egg, you know, maybe I'm just such an epistemically humble person that I was attracted to pragmatism, but that is one theory. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So like it's it's tough to explain my like my epistemic humility how it can be calibrated maybe so perfectly. Just, maybe it's just the weed. <laughs> it's probably the, yeah. Uh, it's a good hybrid. Yeah. Well, it's a <laughs> I, I in, enjoyed this uh, article more than I I thought, and I certainly disagree I, with it, but yeah. a lot of it. You publicly disagree with yeah. it, but like a big part of you, I think, uh, fully. <laughs> no. it. It's just, it, you just have to like, you need like psychotherapy. Or something. <laughs> just, no, this article made me uh, read a whole bunch of other stuff that, that um, it felt kind of fun to get like, to learn, uh, just hadn't been exposed to a lot of this. So like, I feel like it challenged me. The best thing about the pragmatists is how little patience they have for like bullshit philosophy. Yeah. You know, like they really just, they just refuse to participate in any of that. You know, like I, I, I have a ton of respect for for that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. No knowledge argument. It's no, like, I'm not going to even like, yeah, no, we're moving on. (laughs) It's weird because they get into the, they get into the arguments only to tell people that they're stupid. (laughs) Like. Yeah, I mean, there is, especially for some of them, there is this question of, well, you seem to be hammering this point home over and over again. But this is what I like about Rorty and what I like about the perspective is I think Rorty really did think, look, what this means is philosophy is not some special practice and literature and art and all these other ways are also just, you know, uh, other valuable ways of of acquiring your beliefs and approaching the world like like appreciating the richness of the world and so it is it has a more kind of artistic sensibility too because it fully embracing the idea that there's all these different ways of learning about the world and Rorty himself even though he would get trapped in like a you know internal debate with Put- Putnam and stuff like that he also did a lot of kind of fleshing out of what the positive worldview of a pragmatist is we should wrap up but is it here that he says that there are people who probably legit believe that if the greeks hadn't come up with their ideas that somebody eventually would have 
Yeah, like this is where I actually was a little bit like he attributes a lot of things, desires and like needs of the realists <laughs> yeah. that I feel like a lot of realists that I know don't have. <laughs> right. That, you yeah, know? Like you don't necessarily think that like the, the Greeks would necessarily have popped up somewhere else. Right. You know? <laughs> that's like and, a and Star Trek an, thing. Like every once in a while, the old Star Trek, there's just like an old West world like out in the middle of space because just convergent evolution like so, like it was gonna these things were gonna pop up <laughs> all right well i'm glad you enjoyed it i certainly did i would do more pragmatism we could do dewey i mean um, i would actually like to get into some putnam but that would mean that you yeah. have to just twin earth <laughs> yeah let's do twin earth. like i don't know about that we'll have to well you know because I, I i mean the putnam that in that engages with with rorty like i feel like if you truly are open-minded you have to like expose yourself to to the counter arguments all right join us next time on very bad wizards